Thank you so much for downloading this episode of So What Do You Really Do? The podcast where I, your host, Dedder Dennis Maller, speak with artists and entertainers about their day jobs. And I am more excited than usual because if you listened to the last episode with Eric Griffin, I talked about how I lost an SD card from the Boston Sci-Fi Film Festival. Well, I found it! Oh, uh, that was my impression of Kermit the Frog being excited and waving arms. Yes, I waved arms and did physical actions on the podcast. All right, anyway, here we go. Uh, the first of the interviews that's going to be coming from that lost SD card uh, is this one. This is uh, with director Lisa Downs. Uh, she directed the documentary Life After Flash, which is about uh, living a life after Flash Gordon with... Um, uh, the subject is Sam Jones. Uh, of the subject of the documentary is the actor Sam Jones, who played Flash Gordon. Um, if you're a super sci-fi nerd, you know that. Um, or if you've seen the movie Ted, you know who he is uh, because he shows up in that. So uh, this is my conversation that was lost into the world and then suddenly came back to me. And by came back to me, I meant it fell out of my pocket and was underneath the seat in my car. And I cleaned up my car. And there it was. So please enjoy this conversation with uh, film documentarian Lisa Downs. So the best that you can do, I'm, I'm infringing on your time, so. No, no, no. You think the other half. Brain? Yes, because yes. I'm also on jet lag time. Oh, yeah, I guess still, because you, I guess you flew in yesterday. Did you we, we actually got in the night of the six. But I still, like yesterday, we were so jet-lagged that we were like up at 4.30, just went, I think we should go to Salem. So we ended up in Salem for 7 a.m. I kind of wandered, spangled around the town, got back, like didn't really get to sleep and then had the screening, so it was all over the place. Uh, by the way, I love the shirt. Uh, Matchbox 20 was my, first ba- was my first concert. They were my, well, they were my first concert without my parents. They oh. were my second concert. Okay, my parents, the first, the... My parents, I, my parents never took me to any house. My parents right. played music in all the, uh, in the house, but knew nothing about music. Couldn't play. My mother apparently, f- about five years ago or less, about ten years ago, all of a sudden said, "Oh, I used to play violin as a kid." I'm like, when and where? You've never mentioned this. Why? Uh, but they're. <laughs> well, my parents are very big into music. My first concert was Michael Jackson for the History Tour with them. Oh wow! That was the only one, and then. Matchbox 20. Yeah, I, I mean, my my parents took us, my brother and sister, I, to the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles concert uh, at really? the Baltimore Arena, uh, which I don't think counts as the first concert. It doesn't. It's the oh, Turtles. They're I singing. Don't, it's I music. Don't think yeah, no. But I love uh, Matchbox. Uh, yeah, so no, I actually got thrown out of that. It was a free concert uh, in the uh, 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 in the Baltimore Inner Harbor, outdoors in the pavilion. I got kicked out because I ran up on stage. Did you? And I was like, you guys rule. And then I go to stage dive and just three big burly guys are coming over the stage That's and just manhandle me at 15 years old. I'm like, all right, whatever. And all I did is just take off my glasses, take off my uh, flannel shirt and tie it around my waist because it was in the 90s and I was into grunge. And oh, I'm a Gen Xer. I had a flannel shirt too. <laughs> and then came back in. And kept a jeans. And- <laughs> um, so I, let's... Uh, Am I close enough? No, yeah, I you're have, fine. I, I have quite you. a mousy voice that doesn't carry, so yeah, a lot no, of people I have are a, like, wow. Well, since I'm using this, I'm going to do a lot of uh, cleaning up afterwards. But let me ask you this, because I'll I'm always and interested in about... the diaphragm. <laughs> I'm picking up loud. Yeah. <laughs> let me ask you about the tattoos, and not specifically what the tattoos mean. My mm-hmm. question is, how annoyed do you get with guys at the bar who ask you about, oh, so what's up with this ink, as a way of flirting with you? Because I... If no that one's was ever me, done it. Really? No one's ever done it. Oh, I've seen so many dudes just go up to, 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 to women like, so what's... You got some awesome ink. What, and it what's drives it mean, me crazy. Yeah, no, it, no one has ever done it. Okay. Not, you know, there's the invitation. <laughs> no, my boyfriend's in the hotel. Um, no, it, no one's ever done it. I mean, people genuinely, unless I misread, I'm not very good at signals. So mm-hmm. unless, like, when they've asked about the, the tattoos have like implied something else and I've just been like so oblivious going oh it's wonderful and, you know yeah, completely misread signals which which does happen yeah, a lot I feel like when you're a, a woman and you have exposed tattoos it's an un, uh, unintentional invitation for dudes to come up and just start talking to you oh and is that right oh, okay, I feel I that and I have few more friends who have kind of expressed the same right. opinion so that's where I've okay. developed I'm, that opinion from I have a lot of females ask too so I think maybe I don't uh, um, differentiate between yeah. The male and the women. Um, but. but on the topic of filmmaking, uh, originally let's go ahead. What made you want to become a filmmaker? Uh, I I wanted to be an actor when I grew up. Mm-hmm. As I was growing up, I was obsessed with film. There was this 
in Australia, in the, we had these cinemas called Greater Union, and they had this compilation, a compilation of like all these amazing films to this song, That's What I Want. And it was like all action and Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz, and it was like this really amazing ad for this um, cinema chain. And then after seeing that, I was like, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to be involved in film somehow from this stupid ad in the cinema. Um, so I wanted to be an actor, obsessed with everything to do with film. Realized I was terrible at acting, but a good backup career, as I was trying to do at the time, was behind the camera so I could be in control of it. Um, went to do a BA in television production in a lovely country town called Wagga Wagga in Australia. Uh, did that for three years, loved directing, and that's how I got into the industry. So I, my background is more TV than film, um, but I definitely want to get in, well, be more in feature documentaries now, but that's how I got into it. And why why do you choose the documentary over narrative fiction or uh, something like that, or, you know, making regular, making things not about real making people? Regular. Um, it's always making things been, about fake people. It's always been something I've gravitated towards. It's like if you're a kid and you love, like, action films more than romance films, you know? It's just something that you kind of keep watching when you have an option to. Um, I've always loved documentaries. The first documentary I made was a short when I was at university um, about this Tibetan's village in India. Um, and I really enjoyed the process of it. And then I had done some travel documentary work as well for like Nat Geo and Discovery Channel. Um, and I loved, the, I loved the idea of telling stories um, in a way that wasn't restricted, but I hadn't had experience on set at that point. You know, I never really grew, grew up with my career being on a film set to be really able to compare it. Um, so I directed my own scripted a couple of years ago, well, actually seven years ago. Um, and I enjoyed it, but I realized that it wasn't really my cup of tea. So I, this is why I've done my own feature. Uh, what was the name of the scripted? It was called Just Eight. See, now I was gonna. I'm gonna ask you about that. We'll get to it either now or maybe we, later. Whenever but, you like. Uh, I wasn't sure if that was a documentary or uh, if it was a scripted thing or not. When I looked at the quick description, because uh, it's about, if I remember correctly, doing my research, it's about a chef who has an eating disorder. Yes. So a friend of mine who worked with me at a television company. Well, there's there was three of us. One of them used to be a chef who had bulimia. And she is a very talented scriptwriter, loves doing it, happened to have a script and said, hey, we should make a film. This other girl in the office said, great, I'll produce it. I said, great, I'll direct it. Um, we raised the money and made this film. Um, we didn't really know what we were doing. It's all our first feature. We shot it. It was interesting because her parents in the film are her real life parents and the house that we shot it in is the house that they lived in so all the things that she's doing in the film was with these routines and habits that she had at the time so it was this kind of weird reality style film that um was very s stressful to film because it was so emotional to film but it was scripted it was based based on her story uh, and I'm curious, just going back to you as a person, wait, you're originally from Australia? Nope, I was born in Chester in See, England. I okay, I saw that and I don't know where Chester was, but that was so, England. Okay. <laughs> no. And you made a, a comment yesterday about the Australian accent and I got confused. I was like, is she making a joke? Did I say no, something No, no, no. I, I do have an Australian accent. I've been back and forth. I grew up in Chester, which is this little town on the English side of the Welsh-Australian border. Gotcha. Uh, Welsh-English, confusing me now. Welsh-English border right at the top near Manchester. Um, then when I was six Still months, I moved you. to Hong Kong for a couple of years with my dad's job. Moved to Australia for a couple of years after that. Went back to Chester to do primary school. Then when I was 10, moved to Australia to go to high school and university. Picked up a super Australian accent. Got rid of my Northern English accent and got an Australian one. Um, and so then moved back to England in 2008. I don't know much. I'm not a linguist, but your accent it seems like a very mild Australian accent to me. It's much milder than it used to be. I used okay. to have the accent because I did university in the went to university in the country where Australians go up at the end, and even if it's not a question, they just talk like this, okay. and they have this kind of twang, and it gets really grating depending on the accent. So I was very conscious to tone it down when I came yeah. back to England. 
because yeah, I grew up with a, a hardcore Baltimore accent. Well, not hardcore. A pretty bad Baltimore accent, which nobody knows what that is. It's basically... Is that like Boston or is that It's like different Boston? than Boston's accent. Uh, in Boston, they drop ours. In Baltimore, we add ours unneedlessly into words. Like, What's an example? Uh, like a great example of a hardcore Baltimore accent would be, it's kind of nasally like this, and then you see things like, I'm going to wash my clothes with water, and I'm going to head up Blair Road there that home deep there. Right. So we elongate okay. our O's. Uh, and then we add ours needless right. and, and then we smash all the words together. Like if you got hit by a car, I might have to call the ambulance to come get you. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So yeah, it's a, uh, ep- the epitomology of the Baltimore accent is apparently a mix of an Irish and a Cockney accent. Okay. Because that was the predominant uh, people that were there after Lord Baltimore. Well, that always amazes me how obviously, you know, New England came, grew from British and Irish and, and then you end up with these like really crazy American accents and like where did that happen? But, you know, yeah, kind uh, of fascinating. And the, the reason I had to work to lose my Baltimore accent was, and also we say Balmer. Baltimore, Baltimore. Uh, okay. But, but the reason I, I was doing a voiceover in Washington, D.C., where I went to school, and the script read, For the annual awards held in Tacoma, Washington. Mm. Let me try that again, you guys. For the That's annual right. awards held in Tacoma, Washington. Can I ask a question from a British point of Please. view? Why do Americans say herb instead of herb? Like, why is the H silent when it's clearly an H and you say other H-E words with the H? The reason for it? I don't know. Right. I have no idea. It fascinates me, and every time I'm like, I don't understand why the H is silent. I had a uh, grandmother who was from somewhere in England, uh, and she died when I was young, but I've definitely somehow grown up, picked up some of the things you're saying like right. I, you know how embarrassing it is to be in uh, middle school to be in 6th grade and go oh do you fancy Jennifer and they're like what the you fuck use are the you word saying fancy. Yes. oh and I say, so I grew up saying the words like process like process and processor and stuff like that and be, yeah. or I say uh, the rubbish bin and everyone's like what are you doing I'm like that's just what I say leave me alone that's so funny I can't get over the fact that you say fancy <laughs> do you fancy yeah. me or do you fancy us funny that's a brilliant word to use. Uh, so I'm what, very impressed. What was it that your father did that you moved around so much? He, I could say something completely fascinating, but he was an electrical engineer. Okay. And it was always timed um, that mum wanted to move to Hong Kong before it was taken over by China again. Then we wanted to move to Australia before it became super strict to get dual citizenship. So there was always a reason that we, we moved around. Yeah, and I guess moving around is much more um, acceptable and easier to do, I guess, in your side of the world as here in America. Because for people to move around, we're very, we don't move around much, especially culturally. Like, you may move around in, uh, between states. But to move from country to country, it's well, yeah, usually because a lot of Americans don't have passports, do they? Yeah. Is that a common fact, or is that a? I would. I, I'm not the leading expert, but we, unless you're traveling internationally, there's no reason for right. a passport. Right. Uh, so most people, if they're getting a passport, it's for a specific reason, not for one day I may want to leave it, the country. It yeah, totally not pre- depends. It's not preventative or not in, preventative. It's in, not, um, <laughs> they're not doing it just in case. They're doing yes. it because they have to. Yeah. In Britain, uh, you will find a lot of people, mostly from the north, that tend to go to the same Spanish town to drink the same English beer with the same English people with the same English food the whole time. So not everyone likes to travel. I happen to grow up with parents who were just obsessed with travel. They still are. Um, I've been very blessed to travel a lot um, with them. So you definitely get people who in England that are very set in their ways and are probably similar to what you would compare people in America too where you know you know what you got your little comfort zone and but to be fair I'm obsessed with America and I think you have a brilliant country and I can see why people don't leave like you have beaches mountains deserts it's such a fascinating country that I I totally get why you would explore it first um, going back to, to the business so you do mostly directing do yeah. you have it and, and do you have any interest in writing your own things is right because I write because I have to uh, I, I got asked to be the uh, writer for the newspaper, and I'm not a writer. I do Q&A-style art, articles yeah. because it's very easy for to ask you a question and then have you answer it and then me just transcribe it. Then yeah. it just makes something, uh, something that looks and reads smart because I'm a big dummy who went to six years of community college. Uh, as a director, do you feel it's necessary to write some of your own projects, especially since you're in the independent world? Or? Not, not really, to be honest. I mean, it obviously helps. Um, when you're in, in the, the independent film game, um, you know, if you direct, you go, oh, I may as well produce. And, you know, it's just one less person to, to find. You know, it's so hard to find someone reliable that isn't caught up in their own entrepreneurial life that, you know, that they are trying to do their own thing and you want them to give 
that attention onto your project. Um, so, you know, a lot of people do try and do everything. I am just terrible at writing. Like, I literally, if there was some kind of film with a twist, that twist would be shown in the first five minutes where I go, hello, how are you? I'm really a woman. Ah. You know, I have no concept. Of foreshadowing. I've, totally. Like, it, I, I, the worst script writer, and I have tried really hard. I tried to write a horror film once. I still would like to do it, but I think I want someone else to write it. Um, I just, I'm not good at it. And I acknowledge that I'm not good at it. And there are people that understand it more than I do. So I don't try and hide it. With documentaries, you can get away with it a little more um, because especially with Life After Flash, I, I kind of wrote it as I filmed using the footage. Um, there's a couple of films that I, I'm trying to work on where I know that I need a script because it's a bit more factual based um, from a historical point of view, but definitely um, writing is not my forte. Um, I've always heard in the film industry, a movie is written three times. It's written once on the page, written once in the camera and finally again in the edit yeah totally um, I feel like that uh, applies so much more to documentary filmmaking because you can't plan for what people are going to say or do or however especially with Life at the Flash because I, I don't think you, I don't know did you set out I didn't get to see it last night. I had to leave. Because <gasps> For shame. I will see it on VOD February 26th. Uh, February 26th VOD and DVD Blu-ray And March here in North 26th. America. Because that's where I will be February 26th in North America. Yeah. Uh, it's because I had a stand-up comedy show that I need to run to do a quick set. So you're doing this interview blind. Uh, I am. Yes. Well, it's, I'm trying to quiz you on that. And this thing. I'm no, not going to ask you a lot about uh, the, the documentary and it, the, the, the documentary about itself I care more about who you are and I just feel oh, like that you're nice. yeah, that's I, a good I've looked at some of the uh, interviews and it's literally I just people asking you about yeah. Sam Jones <laughs> I know, it's like isn't it? so what's Sam Jones like <laughs> what is Brian Mays like do you know what that's very true it's very refreshing yeah uh, well, do, uh, that was so what of, is Brian Mays like? yeah. no I'm kidding <laughs> um on that, is there a small fear inside of you a little bit of being in the shadow of these people that you work with on the uh, a little bit? Not at all, not at all, because it wouldn't be a film without him. You know, it's his story. Um, I, I didn't do it to try and become more successful or more, you know, oh, yeah. a public eye. Yeah, it's, it's a story you wanted to tell, it's but... It's totally his story and, you know, he has earned his shadow and he should keep his shadow <laughs> and, you know, I have no problem with that. Okay. Uh, we can cross off that question. <laughs> uh, because I, 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 I mean, you were mention... talking about the three points. Oh, yeah, story. let's yes. go back to that, that point. Yeah. Uh, so, when you were uh, with using Life After Flash as an example of that, what was the first story that you thought you were going to tell with this with this when you sat down and said, hey, I want to make a thing about Flash Gordon? I think a better way that I found with the documentary, instead of thinking, okay, there's three times that the script is written of a story, it's more of an idea. Yeah. You know, I had an idea when I first connected with this mutual friend that Sam and I had had that it first popped up and I was like oh it would be great to make a film about Sam Jones like what's he done now I love Flash Gordon I love Ted I'm fascinated by the concept like I wonder what he's done and so that was like idea number one um, but I didn't know anything else about him and so when I first interviewed him in Texas which was four years ago now I kept the first interview very top level like how did the auditions go what was it like on set um, what was it like working with other actors? Um, because I didn't know him yet as a person or close enough to start even getting involved in, in personal conversations. And it was also a time where I was still pitching to him the idea of doing the project because I needed him to be involved from a crowdfunding point of view to be able to do it how I wanted to do it, you know, with signed photos and DVDs and stuff. So it started out as very much an idea and as we did more interviews you know you would get little drips and drabs of things that happened in his past and, and elements that I would want to touch on and then I would every interview maybe interview him a little deeper into his past and his personal life and, and get that structure and then so I guess in your analogy the first story for me the first script right was the initial idea then it was after we finished filming and then it was like midway through the edit 
was probably the three points that it shifted for me because I had no idea what was going to happen with it. I didn't know where the story was going to go. And that was really scary because I had a lot of people saying to me, why are you even bothering if you don't know the three-act structure? Like, what is the drama? What's the suspense? Why would people want to watch it? And I was like, well, I don't know. You know, I'm just trying to make this story and I want to see where it unfolds, but I just have no idea. And I started to question it a lot. And Like, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And there's you can't answer those questions without doing the research too and talking to Sam and finding out the people involved around it was all right well here's me researching what makes this story interesting like there's a a a, just a fascination level because it's celebrities and it's movies there's that but then there's a deeper more real fascination with uh you know his depression and I think he had a drug habit for a little while I'm not Okay, you're nodding your head. Well, <laughs> this he, is an audio podcast. I don't want anybody to say that I made that up. No, he. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Especially say, since I didn't see it. I don't. He never used the word habit. He, okay. you know, he lived in Hollywood as a young actor, where they lived in excess. You know, and he has admitted he did drugs. Um, he always said he had this great system, which I use now, actually. To be to fair, he was. He does a pros and cons column. And he writes down whatever he's doing, all the pros and all the cons. And if the pros are smaller than the cons, no, sorry, if they if the cons outweigh the pros, then he needs to stop it. And that's what happened with the drugs. Okay. Um. But that was just one element of all the, the many things that happened. And we don't actually go into it too much because um, I didn't feel like it. that was one of the more important storylines. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've worked on this project for four years I Skyped Sam October 2014 and we're in 19 so we're going on five years involved with this project is that a daunting amount of time to (laughs) be involved with one thing and then like do you have insecurities or or worries about starting the next thing and it's either going to take up that much time of your life or is it hey look I've been involved with one thing for so long how do I even start another project is that a concern you don't go into it knowing it's going to take five years I was very naive when I started because I just thought you know Zach Braff had just raised like 12 million on Indiegogo for um, whatever the film he was doing and um, I was like, yeah, we'll just raise the whole budget, like quarter of a million, it'll be fine. And you know, and I had no idea about it. And I actually started a kick, um, Kickstarter campaign and had to cancel it after a week because I was asking for too much money. I didn't give any time to promote it at all. I didn't. I underestimated how long it would take to try and build an audience with it. Um, Which is something you could not have known beforehand. I guess. No, but I mean, if I had researched, maybe. Um, so when you get, I had thought when I had set up that crowdfunding, I was like, okay, everything will be delivered in a year, year and a half, two years, you know, cause the average life cycle, if you have a production, you can do it in three months. And that's what I was used to with television shows, you know, three months, four, five months, maybe. Um, so when I re had to reset it, I had to allow at least another six months after that to build the audience. But in the meantime, I would do some UK shoots and I never expected it to be five years. But what I'm hoping for the next ones or anything else that I do is to be able to find the funding, at least 50% of the funding or enough to be able to do it in a short amount of time because it's so hard when you have people constantly wanting to, they're constantly messaging and saying, when's it going to come out and we're getting bored of it and, you know, hurry up and, you know, that's the downside of crowdfunding. They know about it for so long that they think it's going to happen in two years, you think it's going to happen in two years, and after four years they're getting impatient and they've almost given up on it, and it is really disheartening. Um, I hope for the sake of my career I don't spend five years on every film. I would like everyone to maybe, you know, a year would be a good amount for me to do, a year and a half. Yeah, because I I grew up mostly in the radio industry. I spent 20 years in the radio industry. And for me, we have a life cycle of about 24 hours. Yeah, well, yeah. (laughs) Because we're constant. And I came up, I don't work in like the music radio. So like when it comes to like being on air, morning shows, stuff like that. We're producing content every single day. So we can't. We can't plan out that far. We can't look backwards. We just got to keep churning through. So for me to listen to somebody go, uh, it's going to take two, three, four, five years for me just to have something to show people. I'm uh, find somebody else. But to be honest, I mean that's documentaries. You hear some people with these films. Like if you're a director on a big budget film, you've got like two five, years, 10, 20 years prepping, maybe yeah. you know, and it's it's insane. Yeah. So I probably say five years, and a lot of directors we go, oh, it's nothing, but. Uh, for me, 
with my experience, especially with documentaries, it doesn't need to take that long. But I had, you know, the, the crowdfunding aspect, I needed to raise the money. It took two years to get some of the interviews locked down. Um, not just finding people, but getting their schedules available for yeah. me to go and see them. So it is a long process. And then you have all the post and the sound. And then I had it finished, or I thought it was finished, and we had these private screenings. And because I was so close to it, that was the first time I'd watched it after about a month, and I could see it objectively. And then both my, myself and my producer just said, we need to re-edit this. So then I went, I, you know, I thought it was finished. And then you go back, and then I'm re-editing. Then you go back into the sound, you go back into the grade, and it's really draining. Um, but, you know, it needs to be done. So there's all these hurdles that you don't think you're going to... Um, come up against but that's just the, the way of every film I think I'm not the only one I think I, I was saying to somebody yesterday that films are never finished they're just abandoned <laughs> yes. yeah. but also I feel like I overheard somebody say there's been I think Sam said he's seen four different screenings and four different edits or is that somewhere I, close I, to true Sam has seen I meant for you seen, as edits yeah wise. no no Sam has seen this on the big screen four times and he saw the old edit twice on the big screen but he had seen edits as we went so you know he was seeing assemblies that was part of the deal I didn't want him to think we were gonna um, ambush him with some you know nightlife just nightline expose of you know this Hollywood actor so he was very much involved in the process but yeah he saw on the big screen the two different edits do you fancy yourself as being a good interviewer since you're in the documentary field I have a lot to learn. You think so? Yeah. Because I'm curious, as someone who does interviews, to hear from other people, what do you think makes for like a good interview question or a good interview session or something like that? Uh, I, if I wasn't, if I was going to do it all again, I would do a lot more research for the people that I was interviewing because I was so consumed. We had a two two person team on this film, pretty much. So I wasn't just like preparing for an interview. I was like making sure the car is there and the hotel and the flights and trying to lock in more interviews and then trying to edit at the same time. And so my focus wasn't 100% on the interview. It was like, well, how are we going to juggle the next logistical problem? And, you know, so if I could do it again, I would definitely do more research in the questions that I was asking people. I think given the circumstances, I'm, I think I'm a good interviewer. Um, I definitely Louis Theroux is a really good UK interviewer, which I don't know if you're familiar with over Louis? here. He's part of Louis the Theroux family. Theroux. I think he's cousins with Justin Theroux. Oh, Theroux. Theroux. Theroux? Oh, sorry. Theroux? Yeah, I say Theroux. Okay. Potato, potato. Oh, it's it's um, it's French. So yeah. who knows how to how it's pronounced? <laughs> the, the, the yeah. <laughs> uh, Jennifer Aniston's ex. Yeah. Well, that's how. Yeah. So the cousin of Jennifer <laughs> Aniston's ex is this really good interviewer in England, and he always said. Um, he, he has this technique where he lets people, like, he lets the silence continue. Yeah. And I always remember that. So I think that was one of the best things that I did because someone would finish the question, I would just kind of sit there. And wait for them to fill a silence. And then when they fill a the silence, that was some, when some of the best stuff comes in. I do the same thing. And I just did it yesterday with uh, comedian Eric Griffin. Right. Uh, I heard that from, I think, Barbara Walters. Right. Well, there you uh, go. And it's like, as soon as somebody stops, you just sit there and yeah. let them feel the awkward song and then they'll keep talking and talking yeah. and luckily my interview yesterday was over the phone so there's no eye contact so you're just on the phone and, and you they just think don't they're like hello yeah. <laughs> hello is and the line yeah but, and, and so yeah. it's even more awkward where it's like you don't hear anything you don't see anything uh, oh, well let me keep filling yeah. in it, I've done it with other comedians I've interviewed and it works a lot um, eh, yesterday was a hit or miss he felt I uh, Sometimes when I do some of these interviews with comedians, they, they feel so guarded and yeah. agitated to be there. Whereas some people like, uh, I don't know if you know any of these comedians, but Jackie Cation uh, was open and bright and wonderful and happy and energetic. And she does a podcast with another comedian called Laurie Kill Martin, who I talked to a few months prior. Um, and Laurie's the exact opposite. And she's also very to the point, because I tried to set her up for to be able to tell a joke in the midst of the conversation. Like, I knew her material, so I'm like, I'm going to set you up to talk about that time that you had a date. And you're like, look, I don't have time for, for that. I'm a single mom. I don't have time for dates. Let's, uh, right. or whatever her joke is. Yep. And I set her up for it, and she doesn't hand it. I was like, 
hey, Lark, can you just tell this joke so we can <laughs> get people who are reading to laugh? She's like, look, if you want me to tell my jokes, just tell me that and then make up the question around it. Let's not uh, let's not make up bullshit here. Yeah, I think it, I mean, it definitely helps to do it in person, then you can yeah. read the person. Well, I had this awkward moment, though, with Peter Wingard where I kept the silence. And I genuinely thought he was actually going to finish the sentence because the inflection implied it. Um, and then he kind of just stopped. This will be on my special features. He stopped and he's like, well, Christmas is coming. Is the next question going to come? And he was very theatrical and he was very, you know, proper that we should say action and, you know, keep the questions going. So I learned my lesson to uh, try and read people as we went along. But no, I think I definitely have a lot to learn, but I think I, I give it a good shot. Uh, one of the other things, uh, another comedian by the name of, uh, oh, I'm going to... I'm you can do it. his name later. <laughs> um, By the name of George. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I asked him that same question. He goes, alcohol. That's how you get a good interview question. Get yeah. a good interview response is alcohol. So there's that in the future. Hence the old fashioned. I love a good old fashioned. Uh, let's uh, move because you're here mostly right now today talking about women in filmmaking. Uh, yeah. One of the things that I'm, I'm just, I'm not even going to be coy about this. I'm not even going to be witty about this. I, You said something I love and I would love you to repeat it about the statement about. Uh, no longer having to celebrate women's accomplishments in the industry. And this might be a bad way of saying for you to introduce what you're going to say, but that's one of the things that I kind of live my life by where it's like, if you start treating things like they are normal, then they will become yes. normal um, in that way. And maybe me as a cis white male uh, who has the haircut of a white supremacist, maybe I'm not the best to be saying that, but yep. you did say something along the line and I would love it if you could repeat that. Cause I'd love uh, for people to hear that opinion from you. Uh, I think it was about wonder woman. And Patty Jenkins. Yes, correct. So, yeah, we were talking about how, you know, Wonder Woman was a great character and it was such a a popular film, but a lot of the press was around the fact that the director was a female, you know, and that was part of the big selling point more than the film itself. Keep going. No, I just wanted... Sometimes I keep an eye on things. I I, I was trying to do that nonchalantly without interrupting you. No, that's fine. Yeah, so, so a lot of the press around Wonder Woman was about the fact that it was a female director, but it's not like... There was an ad for Star Wars, and it was this big hoo-ha that Star Wars has a male director. Quick, everyone go and see it because it's a male director. It's, you know, breaking boundaries because it's a male director. Like, we shouldn't have to focus on the fact that the director is a female. It should just be Wonder Woman comes out, and it's a brilliant film. Um, So it would be nice to get to a point where you don't have to make a point of, you know, at award ceremonies saying that, congratulations, we've got one female nominee that's really great and inclusive of everyone in the Academy. You know, it should just be part of the norm. Um, growing up as a, as, a, as a woman wanting to be in the film industry, who's now in the film industry, is there certain people that you look to uh, as female influencers or people who are male allies, for lack of a better word, on that? Because uh, one of the things, during the panel, they kept talking about aliens. Yes. Uh, and I, to me, when I think about aliens, I think of Michael Bean. I love Sigourney Whitman. The reason I think of Michael Bean, I think he's the most feminist man in all of filmmaking. Because if you look at his career, he made, he took Linda Hamilton, Sarah Connor from a waitress who can't balance her checkbook into a badass gun-toting uh, destroyer of robots. He taught Ripley how to shoot a machine gun and shoot grenade launchers so she could save her now surrogate daughter, Newt. Um, and then there's also Navy SEALs. So it's yeah. like, <laughs> and then the knife thing. Yes, oh, yeah. that's uh, yeah. That's uh, what I took away from aliens. Is that yeah? <laughs> um, so growing up, were there people that you wanted to emulate, or people who influenced that made you think you wanted to? Because me as a comedian, I literally tell everyone I wanted to grow up to be Lucille Ball. Really? Because <laughs> I never saw anything different between Lucille Ball and me as a person. Well, um, that's so that's an interesting question because I didn't grow up as a kid going right. Who were the strong female actors and actresses? Well, actresses and, and directors that I wanted to emulate you know you don't see that they're male or female you see something you enjoy and that yeah. you want to be a part of you know I loved the Goonies because I wanted to be their friends and I fell in love with Steven Spielberg because he created these environments and, and locations and stories and fantasies and characters that I wanted to be involved with and friends with so I didn't go oh I you know I shouldn't really like the Goonies because it was you know done by Richard Donner and you know and he's a male um, you just gravitate towards I mean, his things wife, that you Lars love. Schooner dollars made so many blockbuster movies, Superman, X-Men, all of those, those things. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's okay. Um, but you know, but you do have certain characters that you start to lean towards. Like Jennifer Connelly in Labyrinth was one of the seminal characters of my growing up and Baby from Dirty Dancing was another one. And 
um, you know, and I guess subconsciously you start to, to notice the female characters growing up as a female, but it's definitely not something that you really think about because it's not an issue. It's like we were talking about with, with Wonder Woman and Patty, you know, you don't, you, it shouldn't be about who is responsible for it or, you know, who is in it. It's about what it makes you feel and, and what that brings to your life. Um, so that, yeah, that's a really hard question because I just had this, these, um, these films that shaped my life, you know, as, as a child rather than being conscious of the people behind them. You know, I knew Jim Henson and stuff, yeah, but yeah. I, I didn't watch a film and, you know, I didn't watch a never ending story and like Google who directed it. I just knew that this was a film that I wanted. I did want to be the child like Empress and I had the headdress and everything. Um, <laughs> And, and that was as a teenager. It was sad. Um, so yeah, you just you just know the films and the characters rather for me than the people behind the scenes because I felt that they were so real. It wasn't made by people. It was just you know Fantasia exists. Yeah. You know, and there's no director directing Fantasia. You know that is real, and I I can go there one day. So this here's an interesting question. A friend of mine who does a podcast called TV Guidance Counselor Podcast, yeah. where he interviews people. He gives he owns every edition of TV Guide. Since when? Since the beginning. Really? Yes, he's obsessive. Uh, but anyway, he owns every, and so the podcast is about the guest picks a TV guide. <gasps> oh, I love it. And then it. they go through the entire week, and, they, and that's his mode for interviewing people. Um, is that when the TV question, guide when there's only four channels, or when there's like seven hundred channels? Oh no, it used to be a book. Oh. Here in America, it was a book that right. you would get every week in the mail. Right. Um, so yeah, sometimes it's like four channels. Sometimes it's it's uh, it's more. In our TV guide in Australia, you used to get a free poster of Take That or E17 with every episode. And oh I just, wow! Oh, I, I got TV guide for the posters of the boy bands. Uh, so one of the questions he asked people is, when did you? And I love this question, uh, especially since you kind of just brought it up. At what age? What age do you think you were when you realized that TV was made by people? Because oh, me, I don't. That's a good question. I don't know if I've ever not known it was made by people. Growing up, I've always gone. Oh, people make these. I can be one of those people. I, that's me. A lot of people go, oh, I was almost an adult when I realized that people write shows and that, you know, Sesame Street are puppets. Uh, they're not people and stuff. So I don't know, because I remember knowing that, you know, I knew that the Dark Crystal was done by puppeteers, but I just thought they were part of the world that existed, you know? I think so maybe... more like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where there's a whole Toontown of oh, puppets I can't. and people and cartoons. When, was it a boot that melted? <laughs> yes. Oh, I, make, I can't watch it anymore for that. It makes me too sad. Um, I think I think it was when I started to see the same people. I was a big Corey Haim fan growing up. Yeah, you're that you're that age group. We're the same age, so yeah. And I was the Corey Haim side of the Corys. And I think it was when I started to see Corey Haim in different films. I was like, why is he in? Like, he's Lucas. Like, why is he now in, you know, this other film? He was a nerd film? there, and now he's a vampire hunter here. What happened? Yeah, and I think that's when I started to kind of, like, be... I mean, you know that... You know their films, but that's when I started to really think about, okay, I want to start watching the credits and, like, who is involved in these films and what are the roles and what is this thing called filmmaking that is existing and then obviously when the internet came along and IMDB came along then that just opened a whole can of worms when I was older but um, yeah I guess it was I guess it was in my early teens that you know you're conscious that they're films but in terms of being really into the physical side of filmmaking I think it was probably then but it's so hard I've, I've never thought about that question before yeah I never thought until I heard him say because I immediately went when was I and I can't remember a time where I didn't know TV was made by people but, see, that's, but am I, like, really slow that I thought the Goonies actually, like, lived in a story and no, I could just go and visit them? Most people are, are like you. <laughs> I'm the outlier is what I'm saying. I'm the I had a, a, a brother who was two years older and smarter than me that uh, if I said something like, oh, I would love to move to, to Never Neverland or whatever, I'd be like, it's fake, dude. What's wrong with you? You're like, the so one that, with that spoiled Santa for everyone growing up. He was are the you? one that spoiled right. Santa for me growing <laughs> yeah. up. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so I knew too early uh, on that stuff. And I, I don't want to take up too much time, so I'll go through. The, no, no, move no. on to your next project coming up is another documentary about something you're passionate about and, uh, it's a movie I love as a child as well and it's Flight of the Navigator it certainly is yes. I'm a big nostalgia nut um, yeah. you know yeah I, I reached out to Joe Kramer who played David um, and he was in jail at the time for robbing a bank which you will know if you google him I did. And I was, you know, very shocked when I Googled him. But 
Um, I love the idea after the experience of, of working with Sam of bringing these stories to people who love these films and always went, well, I wonder what happened to that guy. Yeah, because you know? he dropped out of films in the 90s. Yeah, but you know, with Sam, it's interesting because he didn't drop out of films. He worked the whole time. Yeah. It's just people weren't really aware of it. I meant so, Joe Kramer. Maybe. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, so with Joe Kramer's experience, he, you know, he had a really awful life, which we'll see in the film. Um, but it's just something I love. I love passionately my childhood films and I would, if I could have a career where I celebrate these films, I would be totally happy and celebrating the people that were in them because um, I'm a big nostalgia nut. So, yeah, I mean, currently still we're, we're planning the UK release of Life After Flash, but then once we've got Flash out and running, um, we'll get back into production for Life After the Navigator. Okay. And I was curious, where are we at in the production of that? Have you been able to, out of curiosity, lock down Howie Mandel, or is it even a thought of being a part of the movie? Howie Mandel. He did the voice of the spaceship, didn't he? No, that was Pee Wee Herman. Paul Rubens. Paul Rubens. Oh, sorry. My, yep, yeah, that, I was like, wait, isn't yep. Howie Mandel like a talk show host? Was <laughs> he? Yep, no, you're right. It was no, Paul Rubens. Right. No, I, I thought, God, have I missed something on the I research? I sometimes get confused uh, because Howie Mandel did the voice of... Um, uh, 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 not Ewok. That was uh, Warwick Gimmett. No, he did uh, <laughs> like the Gizmo. He did the voice of Gizmo oh, for uh, the Gremlins movies. Oh, I love Gizmo. And he did a um, lot of voice for things and that stuff like that. Right. Now I'm actually picturing the scene. Yeah, uh, a scene yeah. from Flight of Navigator. Totally Paul Rubens. <laughs> um, Is just, Paul Rubens going to be in the film? <laughs> do you know what? It's as much as. Um, I would love everyone to be involved as much as I wanted everyone from Flash Gordon to be involved. It's very early stages. We've shot with Joe for about a week. Um, I've put it on hold while we do Flash, and then as soon as Flash is all done, we'll get back into it. Um, again, with funding and you know independent film, he's in another country, um, and I'm in the UK, so it's tricky. But you know, I would love to interview Sarah Jessica Parker and Paul Rubens, and we've interviewed Randall Kleiser for it already who obviously directed Grease and I'm a massive fan of Grease so it's very exciting um, so yeah it's a, it's one that I'm really looking forward to because Joe's story is heartbreaking and inspirational and I grew up with Flight of the Navigator and he is the sweetest person and I'm really excited to tell his story uh, and finally I don't know what this podcast is about that you do New Kids on the Blockchain so it is a feature documentary and also an online show. A, a YouTube, I'm a YouTuber. Um, it's a New Kids on the Blockchain. It's myself and Ashley Pugh, who's the producer of Life After Flash, and also my partner. Uh, yeah, who was? Yeah, he did a lot he of was, the filming yesterday. Yeah, he filmed yes. yesterday. Um, I recognize this face. Yes, yeah, yeah. So he is a massive blockchain cryptocurrency nut. He okay. dragged me into the space, which now I found fascinating. Um, we it's a thing that I, and I'm not saying this to, your, to, to, to discourage you. It's a thing in the world that I can't stand to listen to. I have a roommate who was telling me so much about it in head. I'm like, yeah. if this is all, this is all fantasy money, and I don't know anything because about it. Because it's very confusing, a. And a lot of the problem is with the press for it, it's focusing on the money side of the crypto and the ICOs in the market, and it's not really focusing on the technology that the money is there for. Even so the what's machines. exciting is the technology. Is the, is Because what I know about the machines is they are very loud, they take up a lot of energy, mm. um, and they're You're talking about the physical miners. Yes. That's one element. So okay. there's, I mean, there's a whole rabbit hole, but the physical miners, um, Yes, they take up a lot of energy. There's new technology that miners don't need to be the way they are currently. Um, it's very new. It's like the beginning of the internet. Um, so Ash is directing a, and I'm helping him produce a feature documentary on blockchain, but also the rise and the fall of the ICO, which is that big hype that happened at the end of 2017. Okay. Um, and we do an online show every week because the technology changes so quickly that we want to get the information out. But no, the miners, that's once, like the Bitcoin, or oh, it takes up more power than Iceland, the miners is one tiny minuscule element of this incredible technology that is going to change the world and it's the equivalent of being around when the internet started in the early 90s. Uh, and three things to wrap up with. Uh, one, if we learned anything from our conversation, it's nobody put Lisa, Lisa Downs in a corner. <laughs> oh, God, I love Danny. It makes me tear up. I used to have the final scene on my phone. I used to watch it on the train. I used to cry on the way to work. 
Um, I learned one of the uh, similarities between your accent and Boston is that you guys both had uh, an R to the end of idea. 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 They say that here. Idea. Trust me. Really? Oh. Uh, I'm trying to pick up a Boston accent. Yeah. Uh, don't. Uh, oh. Trust me, nobody sounds good with a Boston accent. Like, But everyone, but you sound funny. Like, if you're a comedian, you need a good accent, and a Boston accent is good for comedian. So, so the over-the-top Jewish New York accent. Yes. Like, I, whenever I'm talking about somebody, it comes out in that accent, and I don't know why. But I tell that's you my which accent, accent. if I could pick any accent, I'd like a Minnesota. Minnesota like a Minnesota, like a oh. little kind of farm woman, kind of Minnesota. Uh, I, w- I would Soccer love old school uh, continent or transatlantic accent. Where you talk about everything like this. Oh, like, yes. quick, let's get a cup of coffee. Like you're and... going to sell some potion on yes. the back of your... Yes. <laughs> like, you're, like, like you're talking to the cops and you don't yeah. want them to find out anything that yeah. you've done in your life. <laughs> And um, I'll buy anything of you. And uh, I do want to apologize for something that you don't know about, but I'm going to tell you about it. Uh, and I, I, I want to stress this. What I'm about to apologize for was not because you're a woman. I, initially, yesterday when we met, my first impression is that I thought that you were somebody's assistant. Not because you're a woman. <laughs> because the way you were talking about this guy, Sam, and having to keep his schedule and having to make sure he's all right, places no, and all you this. Know and I just, yeah. I just immediately saw it. I was like, oh, she's somebody's named Sam's assistant. And then I realized, oh, the Sam you're talking about is Sam Jones. Yeah. She must be Sam Jones' assistant. And then when I looked up Life After Flash and I immediately saw it written, directed by Lisa, I'm like, Lisa Downs, that must be her. And I looked at the picture, I'm like, that's totally her. But uh, isn't and that I felt nice bad for acknowledging? I did. Well, not, well, I think it's kind of funny that I'm an idiot. You know, that but to be fair, I'm a female and I do the same thing because that's what I'm used to. You know, yeah. I, I've never, I think I've met two male assistants in my whole travels of yeah. 18 years. Of and I'm, long I'm sure at least 50% of those assistants were probably uh, homosexual. Because that's, that that leads, those guys yeah. lead into that, that business too, for some reason. It attracts that kind of personality. Yeah. And just to be a, a, a jerk-off stereotype uh, kind of person that I just brought that up with. Um, so I, yeah, am, I just, admit, I I just admitted to being very terrible. No, do you know what? It's nice you admit it, and I am very organized. And working with Sam, he, you know, from the military, I know how he likes to work. He likes to be, you know, scheduled. This is where you are. And so I just, I adapt like a chameleon. Okay. Um, and now do you... Are you, do you st- do you guys still live in England, or are we moving to America? Is that I a would love message? to move to America, but your green card lottery won't let Brits apply anymore because you have too many people here. Uh, so, uh, is not- that why we're building a wall? I don't understand. <laughs> not for the, the Brits. process. No, not I know. for the Brits. That's a whole other. <laughs> oh, you mean that wall yeah. won't stop the Brits from coming? Oh, weird. Because the Brits would have paid for it. Um, no, we live on the south coast of England. Okay. Yeah, we used to live in London, but now we live on the south coast because we live. You just want to be that much closer. Home. <laughs> yeah, to the hub. No, we we work from home so much that we ha- now have both myself and Ash have our own little edit suites. We've got an office desk in the, the our ground floor, and we you know make the stupid jokes being in the kitchen, going, "Oh, I'm going to go in the office now. See you later." And you know we just go one room over, so it works really well. But no, we live on the south coast, and it's nice to just have that break from the hustle and bustle of London. Well. Uh- Good luck with the rest of the day. I'm assuming Thank you're probably you. going over to watch Accelerator and help uh, Accelerator yes. and help uh, promote am. and um, support that uh, film, which also looks good. Uh, but that's somebody else's. Uh, that's another guest podcast. That's not going to happen. Are you going to interview them or no? No, I no. I literally when I uh, this when I came and looked, I was like, uh, uh, and I looked at we were the same age, so we have the same reference of things. So uh, a a female who is making a movie that is very successful at a sci-fi convention right now. Um, and just as a documentary filmmaker, I'm like, that's an interesting voice that I want to bring to these podcasts. Oh, I don't give, I don't, I, I don't give it. Don't take this the wrong way. And I will say this on the recording. I will not delete <laughs> this. I don't give. It's on the record. I don't care about Sam Jones at all. I'm like, sure he's nice and great, flesh going as well, but. Like my buddy did the Q and A with him after the after yesterday. Oh, he was, he like, was really well, good. Yeah, Kevin's great. Yeah, um, and he was beaming afterwards, and I was like, "Cool," but also I don't get I, I don't get um, fan struck by celebrities. Like have, even if so people have I you watch. never got fan struck? Oh, I have. I just Who don't do you, it anymore. Who have you been fan struck? I don't even know if this is uh, fair to say that this is I've gotten all struck by a celebrity because I don't know if he counts as a celebrity, but he's the lead singer of a band called Goldfinger. 
His name is John uh, Feldman, and this is what it is. And it's less. I'll tell that you was a fan of him. It was less of a of a fan uh, films uh, fan uh, fan interaction. As I was just talking about him, and then he materialized right. in front of me. Uh, I was in Philadelphia. I was talking. To my, I was hanging out with my brother and my buddy's band, who was playing in Philadelphia that night. We're hanging out in a sub shop. I was lamenting about how I missed them the night before. I missed uh, in Philly, and I was in Philadelphia. Uh, I'm going to miss them that night uh, or the next night, whatever it is, in Baltimore, my hometown, which I'm going back to, and this and that. So it was like three days. I had a chance, and I missed all of them. Uh, and we were talking about it, and then my brother and my friend get up and they walk away, and I look over from here to that desk, like five feet away from me, is John Feldman. Did you go into a Ordering it, ordering a sandwich, and I walked up and I was like, as soon as he's done the order, I tap on the back, I was like, excuse me, Mr. Feldman from the Van Goldfinger. Yes, hi. And I do the two handed shake. My name's Dennis, I'm a big huge fan of you. I was just lamenting about how much I didn't see things. Your first record, your son's had a record, got me through high school, like sitting in my room, listening to that over and over, like the, the situation that you had with you know, relationships and, and whatever this and that. Did you take stress. a breath when you no. were saying? And nor did I let go of his hand. So oh, I'm just doing the two hand shake and talking, and then I start getting lost for words. I'm like, yeah, dude. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, uh, yeah, let go. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Ooh, if, you, if he was a female, you'd be arrested right <laughs> <Yes>. now. <laughs> no, I oh, haven't. no, this was like 2003. We were, we were allowed to get away with <laughs> it. <laughs> you had it easy back then. No, I haven't really ever been fanstruck except for, and this is really embarrassing to say, but I you know, don't have any shame in the bands that I like. Handsome. Oh, they're at tre tre they, tremendous musicians. They, they are tremendous musicians. I and have there's a similarity with the hair. So. I, I actually, in my year 10 formal, got the Handsome Lookalike Award. Uh, I have loved they them. Look like girls. I have loved them since '97, um, and I had met them. I was doing a sh um, one of my di the directors I was with for this TV show. We were going to this uh, recording. I'll keep it quick. Um, this I don't TV, want to your no, this TV recording, and the PA had come in. She's like, "Oh, we got a great show today. We'll take you to the green room. We've got Hanson." Oh, thanks. <laughs> And I froze. I'm like 28. Like, this is ridiculous. And my heart started pounding. I was like, what do you mean? They're like around the corner. I haven't done my hair. And I haven't. And so I was stuck in the green room with them for about 20 minutes. And I was trying to play it so cool that I just didn't talk to them. And I just stared and I pretended like I was like. And then when I got the courage to say something, I pretended like I didn't know anything about them. I was like, oh, you went to and like, I had tickets to the front row of their concert. I knew all their kids' names and their and wives' the names and their birthdays and their birthdays. Social security numbers. And I was like, oh, are you on Grooming tour? habits. Like, are you here? You just, are you a band? And, oh, my God, my heart. I thank and I just have never forgotten it. That was a brilliant moment. I'm if so you gen I will say personal experience. Genuinely talk to somebody as if you don't know them. It's very embarrassing, too. Because very recently, they banned the Ataris. Yes. Um, uh, the, you know, they're, they're cover of Boys of Summer and San Dimas High School football team rules. Uh, they were playing here locally in Boston, and I'm, out, I'm I'm doing a comedy open mic at the same club. They're playing downstairs. I'm doing comedy upstairs. I get outside, and they have a van mimicked after the 18 van. And so we're all talking about how it's the 18 van. So and there's a adorable dog inside. Kind of comes out, feeds the dogs, walks, and does all of this. I'm like, oh, this is your van. This is your dog. And we're talking, I'm like, so what are you doing here? It's like, oh, we're playing downtown. I'm like, oh, are you opening for the Atari? Because no, I'm the basis of the Ataris. I had this awkward moment once where I was working on this, um, I was an intern on this TV show, and the actress, I did, she was this famous Australian actress, came in and I was like rolling cables and she just walked in. She's like, oh, where am I supposed to go? And I thought she was an intern. I was like, yeah, there's cables there. They need rolling. You can do this, you can do this. And she looked at me and she's like, I'm the talent. And I never looked that down. She was just awful. Well, Lisa, this is a, a delightful conversation, and uh, wherever you're flying to tomorrow, as home or another convention, uh, uh, you guys, you guys uh, next conventions in New Orleans. No, we're just going for two days before this oh. cryptocurrency convention in Mexico. Um, there's a, if you want to take a, a thing for um, uh, Paul for Night for comedy, there is a great comedy club down there called the New Movement. Okay, um, it's very alternative comedy and very. Um, they take a lot of risks with some of stuff, and there's very funny people. So I would recommend okay. if you want to take an adult comedy. New movement. I would say tell them Dennis sent you, but then they'll go, who the fuck's Dennis? <laughs> yeah, like, get out. <laughs> um, I was supposed to do a festival there this year and I had to map. So this was great. Wonderful Thank talk. Thank you so much. This is great. You. And, uh, Can you send me, said, oh, like, do you have. I will tweet that. I will tag you. I will tag the if hell out of you. If you just send it to all the, the Life After Facebook page, like if you message it to me, yeah. if you can just message it. Yeah, sure. Do you, would you like to preview it before I post it or just. Okay. All right, good. Well, be safe. Enjoy the rest of the day. Take care. Thanks a lot. Better time.